Millions of Americans are afraid to fly, and even those of us who aren't can suffer from a twinge of nervousness as we take off and land. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking with the pilot who wrote a book called Ask the Pilot. Everybody on some level is afraid to fly. It's only human nature. Patrick Smith is a licensed pilot and tackles our fears, coming up later this hour. And speaking of fear, Holly Morris tells us there's no reason to be afraid of Cuba. She describes the surprises and challenges she encountered while filming a TV special in Cuba in her new book, Adventure Divas. I see a sort of lusty, hot environment. I, um, I hear music and I see cakes all over the place. Um, and a lot of booty consciousness. We're shaking our booty all the way to Cuba, talking to the pilot and answering your calls and emails. Coming up in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Just what is an adventure diva? Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're meeting a woman who's dedicated her career to discovering and sharing the exploits of heroic women who've stood up for the rights of women in some of the most repressive corners of our world, courageous women she calls divas. In her quest to inspire first-world women to support women in the developing world, you could call Holly Morris herself a kind of diva. In her new book, Adventure Divas, she tells this fascinating story. We'll hear about Holly's adventures in Cuba, coming up in the hour ahead. Also today, we're talking with Patrick Smith, a commercial air pilot who wrote the book Ask the Pilot. At what point should we actually worry about turbulence? What if a bird flies into the jet engine? Are some airports more dangerous than others? Has anyone actually ever had to use one of those flotation devices? We've got the questions, and Patrick Smith's got the answers. Later this hour. First, let's start with your calls and email. We're at 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. We're all in the same traveler's school of hard knocks. And here on Travel with Rick Steves, we can share notes. Get in on the conversation. 877-333-7425. Or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Alan from Westchester County, New York. Hi, Alan. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for calling. Thanks very much. A uh, couple things. First of all, um, I was looking in your Amsterdam book this year. I saw that you recommended a hotel that we stayed in last year, the Hotel Pete Hine. I had written you about so I was really excited to see it. Uh, it was a great place to stay. Oh, that was your tip? Yeah. Great. See, we get a lot of great tips from people like you, and I physically check them out as much as I can, and the good ones get in the book. So that's what helps me out a lot. It was a great hotel. Okay, I've got some questions for you. Um, My family and I are planning a trip to Vienna and Budapest next year. Um, We're spending six days in Vienna and four days in Budapest. Uh, So we have some time to do a little bit of exploration. Uh, With respect to Vienna, I wanted to ask your opinion about doing a day trip or a half-day trip over to one, Bratislava, and also uh, a day trip to Mauthausen, what your thoughts were. You know, Bratislava is a stop on the boat that goes from Vienna to Budapest. Mm-hmm. And um, if you wanted to see Bratislava, that's a scenic and an interesting way to do it, is to take the boat from Vienna to Bratislava, take a stop over there, and catch a boat on to Budapest. I don't know the exact schedules offhand, but mm-hmm. that would be interesting. Also, you know, it's the capital of Slovakia, so it's going to have lots of... Uh, uh, rail connections and so on. So getting there is quite easy. There's there's no border formalities to worry about or anything. I would remind people when you are traveling outside of what was Western Europe into what we think of as Eastern Europe, be sure you know where your rail pass is working because even a few miles into the next country, if your rail pass doesn't cover Slovakia, mm-hmm. then you should buy the ticket before you get on the train in the city you left from for from the border to your final destination. Right. I think what we're going to do is buy just a round-trip ticket from Vienna to Bratislava. That would be great. Now, I don't know anything about Bratislava. I've I've been there. I, frankly, I wasn't impressed by it, but people who want to see Slovakia, you got to see it. I mean, it just it's nothing compared to Budapest or Prague. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable side trip from Vienna. You wanted to go in the other direction. You were thinking of going to Mauthausen. Now, to me, that is one of the most powerful experiences in Europe. Mauthausen is a notorious concentration camp in Austria, actually. More 
so than Auschwitz, you think? Not more than Auschwitz. It is more more powerful than Dachau, I would say. Uh-huh. But you're right, Auschwitz would be the, the ultimate concentration camp experience if you're going to measure concentration camps in impact from a tourist point of view or a pilgrim's point of view. Uh, Auschwitz really is hard to hard to hard to match, but I, I find Dachau really important to visit and, and a beautiful, uh, powerful experience. But it's a little bit um, kind of sterile or something, or just a little bit clinical, or a little bit like just a, a museum. Whereas when you go to Madhausen, it feels like to me just more of a vivid memorial, um, and I, it's kind of part of the way they present it. There's still. Um, there's all of this whole sculpture garden from where there's statues from every country from where there were victims. You look down over the over the railing and you see this uh, quarry where people would work themselves literally to death, you know. And there's very, very powerful displays in Mauthausen. So for me, that's a, a very uh, gripping experience and I think an important experience. I, I just can't handle tourists that say, no, 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 it's just depressing to me. I don't want to see a concentration camp. I think we have a moral obligation when we are blessed and free and, and uh, fluent enough to travel around the world to get a little dose of reality there and, and check these concentration camps out. And Mauthausen is um, right on the Danube River. It's sur- uh, sort of ironic because it's surrounded by all this romantic beauty. And then you have this hellish reminder of what can go wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a very uh, simple day trip from Vienna. And okay. you could um, tie that in, I think, with a visit to Melk, which is a beautiful town with a famous abbey overlooking the Danube. So do those two in one day, you think? Yeah. Melk and, would, Melk and um, Mauthausen? Yeah, I would try to do those two in one day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the guidebooks will tell you how to get from the train station in Mauthausen up to the actual concentration camp, but it's mm-hmm. um, you know it's, uh, it's a, not quite as convenient as it might be. But once you get there, you can easily spend two or three hours at that concentration camp. They have a they have a, a very very uh, good quality audio tour that you get when you enter, and it uh, narrates in English everything you're going to see to you. All right. Thank you very much. Have a thank, good night. Thanks for your call, Alan, and happy travels. Bye bye. And we got David on the line in Shoreline, Washington. David, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. How are you? I'm good. What's going on? He had a question. We were uh, traveling for uh, four weeks this past October in Turkey, and um, me and my wife noticed something when we got back from the trip. We, When we were over in Turkey, we didn't see uh, any women selling carpets in Turkey, and we were wondering why that was. I mean, we ran the gauntlet, and we saw lots of men mm-hmm. you know, coming up to you, Sure. and we saw lots of women in other entrepreneurial um, activities, but none selling carpets. Hmm. Well, so carpet is curious if it's yeah. Carpet's a lot more high-powered sales work than selling trinkets and, and little doodads that you see a lot of women selling. And Turkey is a very, very um, male-dominated world now. Uh, you know, Ataturk uh, brought them into the modern age back in the 1920s, and and legally, women are completely legal. And I've been with mm-hmm. my Turkish tour guide friend Melika Saval, who is a really a strong personality when it comes to women's rights and modern Turkey and all this sort of thing. And, boy, she'll quote Ataturk to you whenever she feels she's being uh, discriminated against because she's a woman. Uh, and legally, she's on solid ground, but the men just kind of wink and smile and, and placate her, and then they go back to their macho ways. Uh, it's a man's world, and I know even from my experience with Melika, whenever she's a tour guide, and, and when she was married, she would get paid well as a tour guide, and when she came home, she would have earned more money than her husband, and her husband would physically beat her up because of that. And uh, she's had some terrible stories to tell that are not uncommon in Turkey when it comes to males being threatened by females who become more high-powered and uh, um, powerful and, and wealthy through their business activities. So that's more of a culture thing and their laws in the judicial side are changing toward the European standards. Yeah, well, you can legislate things, but mm-hmm. but sometimes the culture moves a lot more slowly than what is technically the law. Sure. And technically, they're very modern. I mean, it's fascinating mm-hmm. to see what Ataturk did to this country uh, as he really forcefully moved them from the Middle Ages into the modern world within the space of a decade. I mean, he said, for instance... No more going to no more religion, no more mosques, no more synagogues, no mm-hmm. more churches. I want everybody to get literate. So he, uh, the way I understand it, for a couple of years there was just a big drive for literacy, and and he wasn't against religion. He just wanted to have people be educated in, uh, and and then they could mm-hmm. assess what religion's right for them. So he had that little interim. Everybody got educated supposedly, and then uh, they all chose Muslim again or Islam again. And ninety nine percent of Turkey today is uh, Muslim. And uh, but you've got this uh, powerful figure, Ataturk, that is even within living memory of a lot of Turks, which is quite fascinating in your travels. And uh, and then you see the struggles as there are educated, progressive, uh, modern women. So, if a woman was to consider taking that up, 
do you think that they would be threatened? Yeah, I think it would be dangerous for women. I don't know for sure. Our impressions were after being there for a month. Um, we thought they made great strides in the short amount of time. Uh, oh yeah, well, you know, you've got to you've got to kind of consider the progress they've made, and not and and it's easy for Americans to say that this is uh, so archaic, but in reality, Turkey has uh, done some pretty remarkable things in mm-hmm. the space of a few generations. And when you compare that to Saudi Arabia or something like that, uh, Turkey is is really progressive. I agree. Yeah. Um, one other comment I have: traveling with my wife. Um, we just wish that you would consider uh, writing a guidebook on Turkey. Uh, the other ones just don't compare in terms of the uh, dryness and staleness versus the yeah. colorful writing that you do. Well, thank you. I got up one morning in Istanbul at about 6 o'clock, I remember, and I had my laptop up, and I started busily going at my book. I was going to write a book on Turkey. And then I, I realized at that point, I said, I thought, well, I thought there was good guidebooks out, and at the time I think there were. And I thought, well, i got I got to stay focused on Western Europe, and I, I decided to kind of leave that to other writers. But... I'm surprised there's not anybody that can do something very lively and very up-to-date on Turkey. But, you know, i got to say it takes a lot of energy and investment in a book to keep it up, to, both up-to-date and uh, connecting intimately with the culture. And if you rely on the, the uh, people and so on, you do have to go back each year and update it. That's true. Hey, David, thank you very much for your call. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> okay, bye now. And we have an email from Linda in Cincinnati, and uh, Linda wants to find a fairly inexpensive trip to Russia that includes more than just Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, for example, Petershof and the various monastery. What are the recommendations? Well, when you go to Russia, everybody goes to St. Petersburg and Moscow for good reasons. Those are the cities where you got all the great art and the great architecture and the great history. And when you take a tour to either of those cities, they um, extend your stay and what's interesting by side-tripping out to places nearby. So you've got wonderful monasteries outside of Moscow. Zagorsk is incredible. You've got the um, you know, palaces of Peter the Great outside of uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, the summer residence, I think it's called uh, Peterhof. So these are side-trips you take from your base in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Uh, for most people, that's enough. You do the slam-dunk obvious major sites in the great cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg. Remember, they're connected by the straightest train line anywhere, I believe, on Earth. Peter the Great was kind of a can-do guy. He got his engineers together after traveling through Europe and seeing what they were doing, and he said, I want a train from this city to that city, and he drew a line across the map, and he said, that's where I want it to go, and his engineers knew they better do that, and that's what they did. So consequently today, you go on a very straight line on the train between those two great cities, use them as headquarters, and side trip out. Your tour companies will do that if they won't. Remember, there are local tour guides that are really scrambling to earn your business. The cost of a tour guide in these countries in the East is super cheap, and it's really uh, the value of them is, is greater than in the West of Europe. So uh, if, you're, if your tour company won't provide that, just get out there at the museums and see a struggling art historian standing in front of the museum. Hire them. They can show you around. Just how safe is flying these days? It's Ask the Pilot later this hour. And imagine this. Bus drivers hug their passengers regularly. Couples nudge and smooch in public like puppies at play. Music and cake are as much staples of the diet as rice and beans. Where are we? We're in Cuba. And we're going to be talking about Cuba coming right up with Holly Morris, who wrote a book called Adventure Divas. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Žuja, jaz sem pa Tina Hitim, prihajam iz Bleda, iz Slovenije in potujem z Riki Stevesom. So that was Slovenian. And my name is Tina Hiti and I come from Blade, Slovenia and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Žuja, jaz sem Tina, pišem se Hiti, prihajam z Bleda iz Slovenije in potujem z Rikom Stevesom. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I'm talking with Holly Morris. And Holly has produced a television series for PBS called Adventure Divas, and she's written a book about that whole experience uh, called Adventure Divas. And uh, basically, it's, uh, well, I'll let you tell me, Holly. Basically, what is Adventure Divas all about? Adventure Divas is a global pilgrimage to capture the stories of women around the globe who are doing maverick work, who are living lives of passion and, in the process, um, changing the communities around them. Wow. Yeah. What drove you to do that? Well, I'd been working in publishing and wanted to take some of the ideas from my work in uh, feminist publishing, actually, to a medium with huge impact, and television is just that. Um, it's a medium with uh, what I always respected its power, but not always its content. So our idea was to co-opt this powerful medium, and, and put forward some new um, icons out there, some fresh images. Shine a light on these uh, un- un- misunderstood, underappreciated examples of courageous struggles women are waging. Right, exactly. Now, one of the episodes in your TV series and one of the chapters in your book is called Cuba, Paradox Found. Mm-hmm. What do you mean, Cuba, Paradox Found? Well, there were a lot of, just I just noticed a lot of paradoxes when I went there, I mean, to in the most simple way, you know, Cuba's surrounded by water, but nobody eats fish. <laughs> and, you know, it's a place, Cuba is a place that is misunderstood in so many ways uh, by Americans. I mean, I think that the economic embargo has largely served as an information embargo. And so when we went to film that program, we had a hard time doing research Um in the traditional ways, but the really great thing is it forced us to do grassroots research. A friend of a friend of a friend knew about some woman who was making um, uh, really extraordinary films in Havana or um, a poet. There's a poet named Carilda Oliver Labra who is, is a national treasure in Cuba, but because she's not published in the United States, we don't know about her. So taking your theme, finding these divas who are waging courageous struggles in the interest of women's rights in, in various cultures, you found no shortage of divas uh, in Cuba? Not at all. And we were really, uh, we wanted to uh, have the women be the signposts of our adventure. It's a cultural exploration, but but through the words and stories of individual people. We wanted to put a human face on Cuba because it's a country that um, our conversations about it get mired in political in, in governmental politics. And we hear about Castro and Che and the embargo, and that's too often it. Um, so we wanted to tell an alternative story. Boy, the, the thought of women waging struggles in revolutionary societies to me is fascinating. One of the most inspirational travel experiences I've had was down in uh, Nicaragua during the Sandinista times. And you could find these women who were were powerhouses in the Sandinista society, running uh, not not the war machine and that sort of thing, and not dealing with this big international politics, but just where the rubber hits the road, you know, education and, and advertising policy and commerce and women's rights and environmental and, and uh, uh, literacy and so on, uh, health. And the passion that they brought into that macho world was breathtaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Sandinista times, they, they made a rule that... Uh, Women's bodies could not be used to advertise things. Mm-hmm, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty fundamental. Pretty mm-hmm. feminist, mm-hmm. and pretty amazing when you consider the power of a macho or machismo in those uh, Latin societies. Uh, what's your take on on these women in, you know, immersed in all of this machismo? How on earth can they wage any kind of successful battle? Well, they, they, the women we talk to talk about that. In fact, one filmmaker named Lisette Vila, she actually works within the system. She, works, she runs the uh, television and radio association in Cuba. But she makes very uh, devalicious programming, and she talks, she sort of dismisses... Um, what did you say, devalicious? Devalicious, you know. You made a new word, the divas. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so devalicious. Uh, at one point, you just, we were talking about this very topic of machismo, and she just goes, ha, machismo, leninismo, and, and makes a joke about the Marxist. Leninist um, sentiment in Cuba, and um, and she talks about how she doesn't let it stop her, but she 
but she addresses that it does affect women's lives. You can have equality on the books, but it doesn't play out in reality, and that's what the Cuban women are dealing with. Um, and that is still very entrenched. That said, um, despite all of the lousy things Castro has done, um, the revolution really brought education and health care and things that poor women had no access to prior to the revolution. And um, also um, alternatives for poor women besides outlets like prostitution. So you hear about that. You hear about uh, the fortes of the, the things that the Cuban Revolution can brag about, and, and some of these are quite impressive. What is Castro's personal take on uh, women's issues and so on? Do His personal? Well, well, not personal, but in, on, on paper. What, uh-huh. what is, well, know, on paper, it's, uh, it's an egalitarian society. Part of the ethic of the revolution is that there, were, there would be no gender difference. And he set up the – actually, his – co-revolutionary set up the uh, Cuban Women's Federation, which is very well funded and um, reaches out to all kinds of communities and is a resource for women. That said, it, it, it's part of it, that organization toes the party line, which says everything's equal when, in fact, it's not. It's not. <laughs> How do you describe machismo? Oh, my goodness. Um, what does it mean? Oh God. You tell me what you think it means. Machismo. Machismo is, um, I don't know, guys being guys, guys ruling the roost, guys yeah. not respecting women, yeah. guys who have more muscle power calling the shots. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think I think all of that is true. Um, I did read somewhere recently that the truest meaning of the word, it has to do with teaching a man to be a man, and it's not necessarily negative. What we all know it to be is, yes, it's it's patriarchy, it's oppression of women, it's all those things. But it's sort of like the word diva in its purest sense. Mm-hmm. Diva means goddess or deity, and somehow it became perverted to mean prima donna opera <laughs> So, you know, I think there's, there's different... So there's um, positive and negative machismo then. Well... I mean, I think in the way we're talking about it, it's primarily negative. I certainly think it's negative. It's a it's a cultural moray that no, keeps women down. In Italy, there's there's a lot of machismo, and there's also the concept of mamone, and that's a mama's boy. And uh. they say the boys in Italy they can't cut the umbilical umbilicone, <laughs> the umbilical cord, and they uh, they they stay at home with their mamone or their mother uh. or their mama until they're like thirty or thirty five, and then they get married and they move right into their their next mama. And these are mama's boys. They're machismo, but they're also mama's boys. Uh, did you catch any of that? Is there any of that mama's boy stuff uh, that you've noticed else in your travels? Well, um, not a lot because we just haven't paid that much attention to the guys. You know, part of our political stance was that we're talking about women, not men. And it's interesting, like, if you talk about feminism with someone who maybe isn't too enlightened, they'll say, so you hate men? I'm like, no, it's not really about men. It's about <laughs> it's about women. And um, so so we really ignored. I mean, we did tackle machismo and a couple of other things in the show and in the book, but we tried to just stay focused on the women. The the uh, valiant struggles of these uh, charismatic women, really. Mm-hmm. Now you said Cuba is sexy in the best sense of the word. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Cuba's sexy, too. What do you mean in the best sense of the word? Well, because I, I don't mean se- uh, the best sense of the word is this sort of eros, this sort of deep, like everything, if you've been there, I know it's a it's a Latin cliche and I'm sort of playing into it. But um, but women, uh, I think I say in the book, there's uh, women really own their butts there. You know, there's this tight clothes, there's, there's sensual, uh, it's warm, it's a sexy place. People are, are, are so warm and hospitable and want, they've, I have the sense of that, that they live very much in the moment. And also because, it, perhaps because it's not a country burdened with the uh, consumer culture and advertising where women are objectified. You could say here sexy means some women selling a Budweiser in a bikini. But there, um, you don't, you aren't pummeled with that sort of consumer culture. There's some political propaganda splashed about. But I guess that's what I mean. It's, it's not um, dictated. It's really coming from within the sexiness. So women own their butts, their booties. Their booty. <laughs> so booty. Women own their booty. And it's not a commercial thing. They're not an icon of some uh, marketing campaign. There's a voluptuousness. There's a love of life that's part of the Latin society, the Latin world, I think, isn't yeah, there? And it, this comes out. It's a booty consciousness, we say. And, and so it's, I, it's not degrading to women. 
I, I mean, I, I'm not Cuban, but yeah, that is what I, I sense. And I think that in many ways in American, because of, maybe because of consumer culture, we, we, women, we don't like our bodies. We think our butts are too big, blah, 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 blah. And, and I really didn't sense that in Cuba. Now, what's your take on the political thing here? Of course, a lot of Americans are uh, appalled even that you would go to Cuba because our government says you can't go there. On the other hand, on Cuban uh, issues in the United Nations, our country would be outvoted 140 to 4 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is astounded that Americans uh, have such a a problem with Cuba. Cuba is the number one Caribbean destination for Canadians on vacation. Uh, Cuba is inundated with Germans having a great time. The Germans just love Cuba. Uh, (laughs) But Americans can't go there. What's your take on the politics? What's the big problem here? Well, yeah, all that is amazing for a country that's only 90 miles from our shore, um, a world away in many ways. But, uh, well, I think that basically the Cuban-American, there's a a small, vocal, wealthy Cuban-American population that has a lot of influence on our policymakers in Washington. Basically the people who fled when Castro won his revolution. Yes, and um, that's what's keeping the embargo in place because, and I might add, I think Castro in power. um, Hmm. Isn't that ironic? Yes, um, because generally, I mean, trade leads to liberalization. That would be the enlightened uh, approach, I I would think. You were walking the streets of Cuba. People knew you were American. You had a film crew Mm -hmm. with you. You were scrambling to try to get things done. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there any bad feelings uh, directed against you because so much of their economic hardship is is, uh, caused by an embargo from your country? Uh, no, I felt no anti-American sentiment. I do. I was surprised and um, impressed by the degree to which Cuban people made a distinction between our government, a government, and a people. And um, maybe they can relate to that themselves. Maybe they can. Yes, exactly. And and I actually find that in many places in the world. Yeah, people can differentiate between a government and its people. Yes. Thank goodness. Yes. And uh, that's a great thing about travel. Now, how did you get to Cuba? Did you just fly straight there, or did you have to go a circuitous route because it's not possible for Americans just to fly to Cuba for fun from Dallas or something? Yeah, it's gotten complicated, especially now. I think that um, many, th- you know, thousands of people go every year. Did Americans you go through Mexico, or how did you? Um, yeah, I went. Um, if you're comfortable I, sharing. <laughs> I went, we, we went under the uh, sort of cultural relationship with the Cuban Film Institute, not as Oh, so you actually went legally? Pretty Essentially, much, yeah. Kind of. So, <laughs> um, we, but you know, I think that we went at a time when it was a little bit looser. To tell you the right. truth, it's a little bit harder now. And <clears throat> I know that some fines are being imposed on people who go through Mexico or the Bahamas. People who want specifics on getting to Cuba, there are travel agencies in Canada that help Americans do this. Mm-hmm. There are regular flights from the Yucatan over to Cuba. Um, on our website at ricksteves.com, we've got uh, uh, a little, uh, if you search for Cuba, you can find uh, information about how people from other countries get to Cuba. And I think that um, really it's an economic embargo. Not, it's not illegal to go to Cuba. It's illegal to spend money there. So if you can go in a sort of legit cultural exchange where you're hosted, then you, you get around the economic embargo. But I, th- I think uh, the response to the Cuba chapter in the book and the program has been really positive because people are hungry to see this country that is so close to us. Um, and they've heard little magical tricklings coming out of, of there. But, um, but, but, they haven't seen real images of it. Um, I know we talked earlier when the, the mic was off about the Buena Vista Social Club. <clears throat> One of the few recent examples of, of, of seeing, you know, a cultural portrait of Cuba. When you think back, Holly, on your experience in Cuba, paint me a little picture. Walk me down the street. What do you see? Mm-hmm. I see all of my fears dropping away from me, all the commie stereotypes I had going away very quickly. I see a sort of lusty, hot environment. I um, I hear music and I see cakes all over the place, um, and a lot of booty consciousness. People people really own in their butts. Cars, I see cars too. If cars, into cars, yeah, the cars, the old cars, cars and with people owning their butts. In them. <laughs> exactly. What got, more could you ask for? Well, it's a time warp. <laughs> it's a time warp. It's a it's a fascinating, voluptuous old world, and it's a cutting edge, struggling, developing world, new world. Yes, very much so. Holly Morris, author of Adventure Divas. Learn more at adventuredivas.com. Holly, thank you so much for sharing with us uh, your fascinating travels. Thank you.
We've all heard that flying is the safest way to travel. But I know you've thought about those what-ifs, especially when the ride starts to get a little bumpy. Coming up next, we're talking to the pilot to find out just how safe commercial air travel is. It's Travel with Rick Steves. from Portland, Oregon. I've heard the train system in Britain is not as robust as it used to be. That is, it's much more difficult to travel entirely by train if doing an extensive trip through England, Scotland, and Wales. Is it better now to rent a car in Britain? Nan, I think you've heard that uh, the British public transit system is more complicated because it's been... um, the national uh, train system has been privatized into a bunch of uh, relatively small companies that run regional trains instead of one national train line. That complicates things from an information point of view and a ticketing point of view in a lot of ways, especially for us Americans. But as far as traveling within Britain, I think the trains have never been better. Uh, Britain has, uh, in some ways, one of the best transportation systems in Europe as far as train goes and one of the most expensive per kilometer. In fact, it's so expensive to travel in Britain by train that it's one country where I seriously recommend considering going by bus instead of by train. Much slower, but more scenic, because you go through all those cute little thatched towns and uh, probably half the price per kilometer by bus rather than train. As far as driving in Britain goes, uh, if you want to have complete uh, control and flexibility, of course you should drive in Britain, but I would recommend not picking up your car in London. You're much more likely to survive your first day on the road in Britain if you pick up your car in a small town or outside of town at the airport. And uh, remember, when you're traveling through Britain, you're driving on the British side of the road, not the wrong side of the road, but the British side of the road, on the left, with your sword hand on the inside to defend yourself against oncoming traffic. Also, remember, in England, you get stressed out a lot by these roundabouts. You don't stop before you get into a roundabout. There's no crossing with a, with a stop sign. You whip into these circles, and you go around, and then you wing off on the ex- exit of your choice. For 10 years, I was driving in England, and I was all stressed out because I didn't know what my exit would be. Then it occurred to me, hey... I'm a tourist. I can take one free 360-degree exploratory loop, discuss my options with my navigator, and then confidently exit on the road of my choice. If I'm not convinced that I know the right choice, I go around again. You can go around four or five times. Nobody knows because only you are circling the roundabout. Everybody else is in and out. Don't get stressed out in the roundabouts. Enjoy them. Go around a few times. Then confidently take the exit of your choice. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick, or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and I want to talk today about safety in the air. We all fly, we all buckle our seatbelts, and I think a lot of us say a little prayer when that plane takes off, because I don't know how the heck it does it, and we get there uh, lickety-split, and uh, we feel very fortunate. I'm with Patrick Smith, who has written the book, Ask the Pilot, and I'm going to ask the pilot right now. Uh, a few things about safety. Patrick, thank you for being with us. It's nice to be here, Rick. Thank you. You know, bottom line, statistically, flying is safer than driving. Is that fair to say? Definitely fair to say. I mean, I know people that are, after they've seen some crash or something, they're going to drive all the way across the country. They're not going to step into one of those uh, flying tubes, you know. And uh, you got to wrestle these people to the ground and slap some sense into them. Well, I think the thing here is that Everybody on some level is afraid to fly, whether you're a first-time flyer or a seasoned pilot. It's only human nature because we're not meant to be in these tubes going hundreds of miles per hour, thousands of feet above the ground. The question is, isn't the question isn't are you afraid, but what exactly are you afraid of? Is it something that you can articulate? I am afraid of turbulence, or I am afraid of uh, fires, or or is it just an all-out phobia that can't really be rationalized and that can't really be addressed by straight talk from a pilot. But you want to deal with that, I would think, by just 
statistics, wouldn't you? You could say every day 25,000 airplanes take off and land safely. I, I try not to use numbers because it's it's a crutch, I think, for pilots just to throw a statistical mm-hmm. bone to people. But the one I do like to use is the fact that every single day around the world, upwards of 2 million people fly. And mm-hmm. in this country alone, we have somewhere around 15,000 commercial flights taking off and landing every day. And, and there have been entire years go by when there's not been a fatality anywhere in the commercial airline industry in America. We have not had a catastrophic crash in this country since November 2001. Wow. That is something. That was the one after 9-11 in Long Island, right? In New York City. In yeah. New York City, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you do hear about planes going down, but these are private planes. And there, there really is a statistical, a huge statistical difference, I would think, between uh, the safety of private planes and commercial planes. Why, why do you think that is? Mostly because of uh, training standards and and the experience levels of the crews of airliners versus private pilots. And that's not to to insult uh, the many thousands of private pilots out there. there There's room for a reckless pilot in the private area there. I mean, anybody can ignore the rules if they want to and and end up dying in their private plane. You can't really ignore the rules in a commercial airline. There's probably so many built-in safeguards. Exactly. It's such a more uh, regulated and structured environment. Now, one thing is clear. I mean, what is it? 50,000 people a year die on the roads in our country. So get off the roads. Get up in the air. I think you're safer. Mm -hmm. Let me talk about some issues. Uh, First of all, these water uh, landing uh, concerns and, you know, life vests. Uh, Has anybody ever been uh, saved by a life vest once their plane crashes in a lake? I'm asked that all the time, and it comes up in the book. Um, there have been cases, few and far between, but there, ha- there have been cases of people uh, putting their flotation devices to good use. Um, you mean a plane this, can land in a, in a lake and people will survive and they'll go down the ramp? Well, and... land is uh, one way to put it. Um, there was a, a crash this past summer off the coast of... Um, well, it was in the Mediterranean, I believe, off the coast of Sicily. A Tunisian commuter plane went down, and I think about half of the passengers survived. And and those who did had flotation devices. Yes. And well, uh, another right. case is after um, a hijacking off of East Africa, I think in 1996, a 767 went into the sea, and several people in that uh, accident also made use of their uh, life vest. Okay, so we're, go- we're, we're considering, uh, what, 50,000 planes a day taking off and landing around this planet, and we go back uh, about 10 years, and we can find a case where they were used. So it's not common, but it does happen. It has happened. And what's with these seatbelt instructions? When will somebody pass a law saying anybody who gets on a plane should be able to figure out that you pull the flap on the buckle this way to unlock it? That sounds like a George Carlin routine or something. I mean, why do they have to do that? Doesn't somebody kind of say this is kind of insulting? Well, you know, the uh, the whole pre-flight safety spiel really could use some uh, trimming. Uh, basically, what you're hearing there is a bunch of legal speak. Oh, is that right? They're covering their bases in case somebody gets hurt. They have yes. to have said that. Ah, yes. Yes. Now, I've heard pilots do hilarious takeoffs on that, for real, before an actual flight. They will turn it into entertainment. Well, some airlines have rules against doing that. Others are, are much more free with it. What about turbulence? Um, I had a pilot told me once that he would have bruises on his uh, on his waist from the seatbelt before turbulence would even even make him nervous. Well, the, the mistake people make is thinking of turbulence as something that is, by definition, a safety issue. And pilots really don't think of it that way. Turbulence is just inherent to the sky. Okay, just it's like driving to, on a cobbled street. Yes. It's going to be bumpy. And in fairness, there have been cases when really bad turbulence has damaged planes and injured people, usually because people weren't belted in when they were supposed to be and they fell and twisted an ankle, that kind of thing. But airplanes are built to take a remarkable amount of punishment and the kind of turbulence that could, to put it crudely, crash a plane is something that None of even the most experienced flyers uh, will experience in their lifetime. Now, I've heard a plane can hit a hole or something, and it'll drop to the point where people can actually break their neck on the ceiling if they're not buckled in. That would be something extremely just as, unlikely. Just as, uh, ridiculously unlikely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, offhand, I can't think of more than one or two crashes in the past 50 or 60 years that were caused by turbulence, strictly speaking. Now, one thing that I'm personally nervous about is when the plane lands, it's going, how fast is it generally going when a plane lands? Oh, about uh, 100 and 
30, 140 miles per hour. So it's so. speeding down that runway, and it just seems to me that, you know, you could dig a wingtip and flip over and burst into flames. I mean, uh, it, how does the pilot, how is, how is it so steady? You know, people envision um, the crew on a plane coming down through a very wind-whipped approach as uh, sitting up front with uh, knuckles white on the wheel and sweat pouring down their face, and really nothing could be farther from, from <laughs> the exactly, truth. That's exactly my image, yeah. Airplanes are inherently stable, and, and when they're pushed away from their position in space, they always want to return to it. And so crews really are just riding the turbulence out as they come down. You're not wrestling with the beast. Somebody told me the pilot is in control. It's not just like throwing a javelin and hoping it lands right, but the pilot's actually flying that plane even after the, the wheels have touched down. In some cases, yes, so he can to maintain center line and maintain proper alignment. But again, it's uh, don't get the wrong idea and don't picture the guy up there uh, flailing about and, and, and wrestling right. to keep the plane straight. The plane will basically keep itself straight. Now, some airlines have an, a reputation for being just sloppy and dangerous. Aerofloat is nicknamed Aeroflop. I was flying in Indonesia on the regional airline there. It's called Garuda, I think, and uh, people say one of their planes drowns every year as it's going from island to island. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it just has a bad reputation. Are there some airlines that are just notoriously dangerous, or as a pilot, do you, are you comfortable getting on any airline and, and figuring it's essentially as safe as the next? Well, when I fly to another country, one of the things I like to do is take the national flag carrier of that country if I can, because to me it gives me a little a little bit of flavor of the country before I get there. Meanwhile, uh, you might be amazed at some of the safety records from what we would call third world countries. Um, a list of airlines that have been fatality free for the past 30 years includes names like Syrian Air, Air mm. Jamaica, Air Zimbabwe. Wow. Um, I've flown aboard carriers from Morocco, Egypt, Peru, Turkey, and I've always been impressed by the level of professionalism. Many countries take pride in the way they train their crews and the types of operations they run. One example that I, I love to bring up all the time is that of LAB, which is the National Airline of Bolivia. Here's one of the poorest countries in the world, but their carrier, which is one of the oldest in the world, has an outstanding safety record flying amidst some of the roughest terrain in the world. Yeah, and that's high-altitude stuff, too. Yeah, in the Andes and up on the uh, Altiplano. Now, we have an environment in our economy where uh, airlines are on the verge of bankruptcy or in bankruptcy. we got all sorts of scrappy new discount airlines, not even giving you pretzels these days. Are they cutting corners? Is there any, uh, any concern about discount airlines or airlines in bankruptcy uh, cutting corners on safety issues? There are issues, but whether or not those issues translate into danger in any real sense is another story. You've got airlines outsourcing maintenance, uh, both uh, domestically and overseas. You have airlines uh, everywhere trying to save as much money as they can. But those things don't usually translate to being unsafe. You have to realize how much an airline has to lose should anything happen, especially one that's struggling to survive. You remember maybe a value jet back in the mid-1990s. Right. That's what comes to mind because here's one of these uh, very uh, famously uh, discount airlines, and it sure enough is the one that crashes. And they were so uh, traumatized by what happened uh, financially and otherwise that they basically had to reinvent themselves, so mm -hmm. start over as a new airline really uh, in the form of AirTran. Are some airports more uh, treacherous than others. I, I'll never forget coming into Hong Kong's old airport, and you had to bank really tightly around these skyscrapers and land on a, on a pier, it seemed like, that went out into the harbor. And I would think any pilot going in there in any kind of uh, uh, less-than-ideal situation would be really have to be at his best. Pilots called that the checkerboard approach, and it was named after a big red-and-white uh, placard that was up on a mountaintop. And you would use that visually to begin your turn to the runway, which, as you say, really was built out on a pier. This is Hong Kong, but they've got a new airport now. Or? That's the old Hong Kong uh, Kai Tak Airport. The yeah. new uh, Hong Kong International uh, doesn't have, uh, let's just say, the style of the old Hong Kong. A lot of people loved the, 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 the romance of being up on the rooftops and watching those planes come in. It's, and you could walk to your hotel from the airport almost in that old, in that old airport. What happens when a, when a plane hits a bird or a bird flies into a jet engine? It depends. Uh, usually the damage is either superficial or non-existent. Probably um, greater to the bird than to the... It's, the it's a more tragic uh, occurrence from the bird's point of view, definitely. Has a, has, a, has a major plane ever gone down because of a bird? There was a military plane um, 
a military tanker plane. I think it was up in Alaska that went down after ingesting geese. I believe they were geese. Um, and now, that would be a jet engine that's, that would suck in these geese. Correct. And it would mess up their fans? Yes. And then uh, for a variety of reasons, the crew lost control. And but it, as far it's as complicated. You know, but as far as you know, it's never really happened to a commercial airline in the United States. Not since the, I want to say, the 1960s or so. Okay. There have been cases of uh, birds being ingested into engines and engines failing or uh, suffering damage, but there have been no uh, catastrophes. Do, do uh, airlines or airports do anything about bird problems? They do. Um, airports employ all sorts of measures to, to keep birds away from well, putting scarecrows out on really? the uh, marshlands to uh, having um, loudspeakers blare annoying noises to the birds. Really? To, so uh, they do take an effort mm -hmm. to keep them away. I'm talking with Patrick Smith, who's the author of Ask the Pilot. And, you know, this is just a great book. I had so much fun reading this book. And Patrick is joining us now uh, and uh, answering our questions about flying. And, Patrick, you're the pilot, and uh, this is something that just fascinates me. I mean, I just can't imagine. What if you couldn't make it to an airport for some reason and you got time to think about it, but you had to choose where else would you land and there was no airport option? Um, maybe it's a silly question, but what would you go to? A, a freeway, a forest, a, a, a body of water, a open field? What, what would you look for? It's not a silly question, but I would uh, put the disclaimer in that Offhand, I can't think of a single time when that's happened, at least in contemporary so terms. So you, you've been diverted to a different airport, probably. That happens once sure, in a while. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, the, the ideal location would be somewhere, as you might expect, as wide and flat as possible, as smooth Bonneville. as possible. You're flying over Bonneville Salt Flats. Salt Flats would be the perfect no location. Problem. What I about a freeway? Could you land on a, a little plane on a freeway? Sure, a little plane, yeah. yeah. And that's happened. That uh, happens? Mostly with the... Private planes. Right. I know uh, I know. Uh, there's streets in Turkey that double as airstrips. You mm -hmm. just stop the traffic and a plane comes in three times a day or something like this. Okay. Now, what if your airplane loses power? Can you actually glide to a safe landing? That's a good question. And people will be startled to learn maybe that um, when you're flying commercially, you've been gliding many, many times without realizing it. Um, crews will very commonly employ what, what they call an idle thrust descent. Hmm. where basically the thrust levers are retarded to idle and the plane effectively descends as it would had the engines had been the engine. shut off. So you don't shut off the engines, but you shut off the power. They're not put doing any work, and uh, the plane is actually gliding in. They're not delivering any thrust. They then are, you kick however, it back in when it comes closer to the landing. Correct. And uh, don't get me wrong, the engines are still running and they're still powering right. uh, the electrics and hydraulics and uh, air conditioning and all of that. But from a thrust point of view, they're not doing anything. Big change since 9-11. Let's talk a little bit about the status of uh, you know, security and terrorism and so on. What's, are, are there actually marshals in the sky, guys with guns that are plain closed and hiding in the planes in case there might be a terrorist ready to strike? There are. And there are armed pilots as well. And there are How prevalent are these? Do you know? Do you have any idea? Well, I'm really not at liberty to say, um, okay. but, but they are out there. out there. There's guys up in the sky, plainclothes policemen on the planes. Yes. Okay. Are, are um, very many pilots actually armed these days? How does that work? Again, I'm not supposed to be right. free with the exact number, but right. there are pilots carrying handguns, yes. Is that something that's a, a pilot's decision to make? Yes. So some pilots who would feel more comfortable having a gun, they can have a gun. It's a strictly voluntary program, which okay. I think is the way it should be. I think so, too. What about these reinforced cockpit doors? Are, are those uh, effective? They are. And in all of our overreaction to the events of September 11th, I think that was maybe the most sensible one. A apart the, from not letting you line up at the toilet in the front of the plane. And making you leave your suicidal tendencies at home, yes. I think this um, not, no lining up in front of the toilet in the front of the plane is, is uh, quite amazing. Well, many of the foreign carriers have uh, taken strong issue with that, especially on longer flights where just the opposite. They encourage people to get up and congregate and move about, and uh, here we are not letting them do that. I don't know if this is the best way to go. Uh, you know, in general, I feel that much, if not most, of what we see at the airport um, is a kind of uh, what I like to call feel-good kabuki. It's it's posturing. You know, we're confis confiscating uh, sharp objects and x-raying people's shoes, and I think we're hell-bent on enforcing the perception of security more so than actual security itself. And a lot of this gets back to our very relentless obsession with the September 11th uh, template, the idea of a follow-up Mm -hmm. suicide skyjacking, where really that's probably the least likely scenario. 
Let's go back to September 11th. The hijackers did not take advantage of a loophole in security. What they were taking advantage of is a loophole in our mindset. Because before that, we had come to see skyjackings as temporary diversions to Cuba or to Beirut. And that model was changed forever. And, uh, you know, the concept uh, already started to break down even before 9-11 was over. The passengers on Flight 93 had caught on. So you ask, well, what should we do today? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, maybe we have too much security or at least too much in the wrong places. And I think we need to develop a, a better hierarchy of threats and put resources where, the, where they're deserved. I think we have too much September 11th going on and not enough uh, worrying about bombs, uh, onboard explosives, shoulder-fired missiles, that kind of thing. None of these things are yes, that likely to happen. But if we're going to spend millions of dollars, let's spend it in the right place. So a lot of the security headaches we incur at the airport, a lot of people, myself included, think are to a certain degree just to make people think they're safe. Absolutely. We're shooting for zero tolerance and trying to seal every little pinhole. And 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 then meanwhile, there's another gap somewhere that's not being addressed. Right. In Europe, you don't have to open your computer. You don't even have to show your computer to get onto an airport through security in airports in Europe. And here they make a big deal of it. Is that just, again, that's just the uh, feel-good security, you think? I think so. You know, here we are uh, how many years after Richard Reed and we're still doing the the shoe x-ray because uh, one person on one occasion smuggled explosives in his shoe. Well, it's that zero tolerance, and I suppose if you're on the one plane that gets saved from that, it's a good thing. But I think, bottom line, airplane uh, travel is incredibly safe because people are doing an incredible job, and that includes pilots like you. We've been talking with Patrick Smith. He wrote the book, Ask the Pilot. It's a fascinating read. Uh, We've just uh, skimmed the material that's in this book. And, Patrick, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.